Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Megan Payne. Megan, how's it going? It's going great. How are you doing, Kyle? I'm doing okay. Things are busy, but I feel like that is always my response. Joining (laughs) us on another busy day is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? I'm doing great and 100% coronavirus free. That's still good. Uh, I was saddened to learn that a Waffle House employee in my home county got coronavirus, which is a sad day for Waffle House fans. Seriously. On today's podcast, we are going to take a look at a really wild beginning to the week in the legislature. This week is the week of crossover day. Crossover day is on Thursday, which means Monday and Tuesday of this week were pretty much a mad dash to set up all of the legislation that needs to be considered by crossover day. If you are a longtime fan of the legislature, you know that crossover day means that legislation has to clear one chamber of the legislature to be considered in the process, although there are uh, there is some fine print related to that. We'll talk about that in our segment. Um, so we're going to check in on updates related to the budget early this week. The House passed their version of the full fiscal year 2021 budget and made some pretty significant tax changes. So we're going to talk about those first. And then for our second topic, we're going to preview crossover day on Thursday and talk about some of the bills that are positioning themselves to get passed on crossover day, um, or some that have already cleared their originating chamber and are going to make it through that deadline and still be considered this year. And then finally, this week, we are going to talk about last week's qualifying period for state and local and congressional races in Georgia. I mean, it does to me at least feel like lawmakers who are currently at the Capitol for legislative session are keeping an eye on what happened in qualifying last week and maybe feeling a little pressure from all of the candidates who qualified to run for office this fall. Before we get into all that, obviously a lot of discussion in politics, in public health, in economics is uh, absorbed currently by the spread of the coronavirus. Um, There are some interesting ways in which uh, coronavirus and and the fear of its spread is impacting Georgia. The one that's making a little bit of news on Tuesday is that the state legislature um, is actually going to suspend the PAGE program. They are the students who volunteer at the legislature to run messages from the ropes to lawmakers on the floor. Um, They also help out with some other stuff around the legislature for their safety and the safety of others, that program is going to be suspended for now. Um, there, The speaker also pretty much encouraged people to come to the legislature as little as possible today. He said that the galleries are going to remain open, but he encouraged people to watch the legislature on the live stream. There's going to be really limited access for guests, including guests for the chaplain of the day and guests for people who are honored by the legislature uh, in resolutions. So that's one way in which the coronavirus story is impacting Georgia politics. There's also some other ones, Megan. What else is going on with coronavirus? Georgia currently has, I believe it's six confirmed cases with 11 presumptive cases, meaning they're either they either haven't been tested or they're awaiting test results. And also we've had um, a legislator, Doug Collins, get exposed and have to uh, self-quarantine. And based on what I'm reading, it sounds like he and perhaps Leffler, perhaps Senator Perdue, were all exposed to P- President Trump and may have been exposed to Governor Kemp. At this time, the last I've been able to check, I've not heard about any sort of tests by Kemp or Trump related to their coronavirus ex- uh, status. But um, we also don't know very much about like third-party exposure So someone getting exposed and then potentially being asymptomatic but exposing someone else. So Georgia might be in a pickle or we might be just fine. We're just waiting to see and we're all learning more and more about the virus as things go. As just kind of a general update about the virus, we're finding that the more people we're able to test, the more cases of coronavirus there are, which isn't necessarily a correlation that is surprising people. What we know is that there is a shortage of tests, and so a lot of people who are probably positive just aren't able to be tested. So the more tests we're able to apply, the more we're finding that, yes, in fact, coronavirus is here. But 
wash your hands, don't touch your face, practice social distancing. And uh, the biggest concern for the general public is that if you are healthy and well, um, you should, there, there are statistics that say you will be just fine, but have a care for your neighbor who is perhaps not healthy and well and uh, practice these, uh, pra- these social distancing and cleanliness practices anyway. And it's been interesting to watch sort of the public health response from Georgia officials. Um, This is one instance where I feel like Governor Kemp has actually been pretty on top of developments on pretty transparent about what is going on. Dobbins Air Force Base is actually going to host some passengers of a cruise ship that docked in California. Some of those passengers will be quarantined there and tested for coronavirus And then there's a park in Georgia, Hard Labor Creek State Park in Morgan County, is also going to be used to isolate and monitor patients who may have been exposed. Um, So it's just been, you know, I haven't actually seen government response to one of these things before, and it does feel like the response in Washington is a little haphazard. President Trump's visit to the CDC uh, seemed to be focused a lot on all of his wonderful accomplishments uh, in his own view. Um, It seems to be a very different very organized and transparent response at the state level. So that's good to see. For sure. Kemp was actually praised for his transparency. And then indirectly, not at, at the moment of the uh, the presser, but kind of later compared to Washington, basically saying, hey, uh, Washington's screwing this up, but Georgia seems to be doing all right. So kudos to Kemp and everyone that presented at that press conference. All right, so let's dive into the legislature here. So there was a lot of movement on taxes and spending in advance of crossover day this week. The House passed its full year budget and rejected many of the cuts proposed by Governor Kemp. But House Republicans also made their own risky changes to the state tax code that are likely to create some of the same problems for future budgets that they seem to work tirelessly to deal with in this year's budget. Um, Let's get into first the budget that passed. So the House in the last few days has moved the full year budget through the committee process. Uh, The Appropriations Committee passed it, I believe, on Monday. And then on Tuesday, the day that we're recording, the full House passed that budget. And that budget really is largely defined by restoring many of the cuts that Kemp had proposed, cuts that got a lot of criticism, including cuts to county health departments, uh, restoring money for the GBI crime lab for rape kit testing and restoring a lot of programs within the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities. Uh, This is the agency that largely deals with crisis mental health services and other other healthcare services like those in our state, um, including $8 million back to restoring core behavioral health services, um, another million and a half for residential treatments for people with substance use disorders, additional additional money in that area, as well as additional money to the Board of Regents for things like libraries um, and some of the other cuts that were considered related to rural Georgia. Luke, another big piece of this budget fight has been what the outcome was going to be on the teacher raises that Governor Kemp had proposed. He had put forward $2,000 raises for teachers in this year's budget. What did the House do with the governor's teacher raise proposal? So they cut in half. So instead of 2000 they would get uh, $1,000, which would put, you know, Kemp's total teacher pay raises up to $4,000 and only, you know, that last $1,000 away from his goal. And, you know, that's, that's a significant raise for teachers, I think, you know, as we've discussed previously, this has been a difficult topic to discuss because teachers really need the raises, and it it's been a good goal to make those pay raises happen. But you know what cost? And what it seems like the house has been quite clear on is it's not the worth you know worth the cost of everything, and and they've tried to restore a little bit more balance uh, to still let the p- teachers get some raises, but not have that eat up the entire state's budget. Is anyone here surprised by this pushback? We saw this a little bit in the amended budget. You know, the amended budget is really only for the last few months of the fiscal year. Um, and the amended budget, to some extent, lawmakers were actually restoring funding or finding new funding for spending that had been suspended by Governor Kemp outside of the legislative session. This is the full year budget. 
starting in July and going through the next fiscal year. Um, So to me, it just stood out as being a little bit more meaningful that the legislature continued their pushback in the full year budget. Um, Was anyone else surprised by that? Or or is that expected? And, And what does that say to you about the ongoing relationship between the governor and at least the state house? I'll say that I was a little bit surprised um, at the, I feel like it, it, maybe this is just me not having a great perspective, but it feels like an extreme push um, or an extreme, a more extreme response than I would have expected in a state where Republicans essentially have full control of the state. But at the same time, just from a, the perspective of getting things done and knowing that the budget has to be balanced it had to be balanced, cuts had to be made somewhere. And so while I'm a little bit surprised where they were made, I'm not surprised that somebody just kind of took a red pen after it, it seems like, and started making some decisions. Yeah, I would say I, I'm not as surprised as Megan is on the fact that they pushed back on Kemp on on these cuts because of the fact of just how Kemp pursued them, you know, I think we kind of take for granted, like, oh, Kemp's the Republican governors, and these are all Republican legislators, so they must want to do what Kemp wants to do. And on this, I just don't think that's the case. I think that, you know, for quite some time on a lot of these proposals, they worked with Deal to find the funding and change the programs, and a lot of them believed in these uh, criminal justice initiatives and the alternative court uh, initiatives, which are getting some of their funding back, not as much as they probably should. But also even just like on a simpler level, like the legislature like takes their job seriously. Like I'd I'd say 90% of legislators take their job incredibly seriously. And they came to session and did a bunch of work on the budget last year. And Kemp basically just said, yeah, I don't feel like it. And I want, I want to do these other things. And so I'm going to cut, I want the budget cut significantly without consulting anyone. He just kind of unilaterally made the decision. And I think what we're seeing here is that the legislature said, don't do that. <laughs> like we're, we, we are an equal branch and we deserve to be part of this process. And, and so I, I think that is what we're seeing here is that they're just not going to roll over and do exactly what Kemp wants, especially when he approaches it in a way that did not include the legislature when he should have. There's two big pieces to me that illustrate this pushback and it being a little bit more meaningful coming in the full year budget as opposed to the amended budget. In this budget, they did have to take a priority that Governor Kemp had put forward, the $2,000 teacher pay raise, and cut that in half. That, I think, is meaningful. The other thing that they did that showed that they did seem frustrated with the process for all of this is they passed legislation that basically limits the governor's authority regarding the budget. James Elzer from the AJC reported on this legislation, and he pointed out that it includes limits on the governor's ability to withhold legislature-approved spending. Uh, That is the spending that Governor Kemp did withhold starting in the fall, even though the legislature was not in session to uh, approve that decision by the governor. There would be limits on the governor's ability to do that. It would also require executive branch agencies to submit their budget proposals to the legislature in September instead of submitting them first to the governor's office and then the legislature not really getting to see them until they've all been put together in the governor's budget proposal. And then finally, the legislature would create a board of economic advisors that would give the legislature input in setting the revenue estimate. The revenue estimate is a pretty powerful tool for the governor. It basically sets the playing field for the budget. It sets the total number of what the budget can be, and the governor gets to unilaterally decide that. To me, it's a little unclear on what a board of economic advisors would do, but this legislation passed the House on Tuesday. I mean, it definitely seems like it would get the governor's veto, uh, but the House was willing to put forward on paper that they were really unhappy with the budget process and they want to see it changed. Luke, what do you think of those changes? I I think these changes are really needed because, I mean, this is just no way to run a railroad. Like if there is an emergency to the scale that like we need to cut our budget by 6% in one year, then like call a special session, bring in the legislature and work it out together 
having the governor just unilaterally doing it because the budget that he signed like didn't meet his policy priorities. Well, like it's your job to do it during legislative session. And I, I just, there was no argument that was consistent from the Kip administration of why they were doing these cuts. It was pretty clear that they were basically just trying to create political room to do this teacher raise and, you know, force the, uh, other parts of the state government to be operating under austerity when they're already basically there uh, to, you know, make it seem like it would be palatable to uh, increase the teacher pay raises and, and do more tax cuts, which we'll get into uh, in a minute. Uh, but I, I just think we're at a point where we need this and that the governor's had too much authority in this area and, you know, Kemp swaying for the legislature and he missed and they're, they're coming back for him. So the bills that did this was HB 1111 and HB 1112, both of which got Vigo proof majorities. You know, this has not gone to the Senate and the Senate is a strange creature and I will never make any predictions about what the Senate will do because they always disappoint me in new and unique ways. Um, (laughs) But I, I kind of feel like this also will get veto proof majorities there, and Kemp will probably veto them anyway. But I mean, maybe they'll they'll bring them back because I I will say you know I've been watching the legislature for a pretty long time, and Republicans pretty much were always in lockstep behind Deal, and they kind of like kept their family problems in family. And the reason why I think that is is because from everything I heard about Deal and the Republicans way of running things back then is that they would meet a lot and they would yell at each other at rooms and then they'd make a decision and they'd go out and they'd all, you know, bite the bullet and make what the team decision was going to be. And thus far, that has not been Kemp's approach. Thus far, Kemp is, I am the governor. I am using my constitutional power and deal with it. And I think what we're seeing here is that the legislature says, we are the legislature, we are using our constitutional power, deal with it. And, you know, I I, th- I don't think that's, you know, as smooth as a way to run things, but it is, you know, more transparent. And uh, since I think this would, in the long run, be a, a better thing to have on the books, especially if you could, you know, imagine if Democrats do take the state house, and we, I, I would personally not like it for a you know Republican governor to be able to just unilaterally say, well, yeah, I don't want to fund that because Democrats like it and I'm the governor and I can do it. So, Well, I think the if you're Governor Kemp, I mean, yeah, the House is using their constitutional authority to pass legislation with a veto-proof majority, sending a clear signal to the governor that if, if they can get the Senate on board, then this will become law and the governor can't do anything about it. Um, if you're Kemp, I think you're calling up Jeff Duncan and you're saying, hey, buddy, you know, one day maybe you want to be governor, too, and maybe you want the authority to set the revenue estimate, too. Why don't you just kill this bill for me? Because um, that's, I think, the one piece of leverage that Kemp has. And Jeff Duncan has at least rhetorically been more in lockstep with the governor than the House Speaker has. Um, and this is one favor that Jeff Duncan can do for Kemp that can probably turn into uh, preferred legislation for whatever Jeff Duncan's legislative priorities are uh, in the future. So that is, I think, if you're looking for the future of this bill, you're looking at whether or not it's going to pass the Senate with veto-proof majorities, because if it passes both with veto-proof majorities, it's done, unless there's an argument that it's unconstitutional. So the other big news that came out of Monday was that despite Republicans making a real show of their pushback on the governor on the spending cuts that they restored in the budget. And they did this by this morning publishing an 11-page document that detailed all of the ways in which they restored spending in super important areas. And they were really excited to put this out there. They also, I think, created their own fiscal problems for future Republicans in the legislature by really all of a sudden bringing out what Speaker Ralston described as comprehensive income tax reform that basically converts the state income tax from being a graduated income tax with a top rate of 5.75% to being a flat tax of only 5.375% 
And you'll note if you've been a really close listener, really close follower of this process, that that flat tax rate is actually lower than the second step reduction that they could have adopted this legislative session. A a law passed in 2018 allowed the legislature to take a second vote to cut the income tax rate to 5.5%. So when they brought out this flat tax proposal, they actually set it at an even lower level than they would have been allowed to under the 2018 legislative session. That proposal passed the House today. It passed on basically a party line vote, 100 to 68 And Luke, this legislation was really surprising to me, given the conversation that has been going on related to the budget and restoring the funding for these programs. What would the fiscal impacts of this tax cut be if it's ultimately signed into law? So the first thing I think it's important to point out here is that like, Georgia has pretty low tax rates, but they are graduating in the same way that um, the federal tax rates are. So what what this is, is, you know, Herman Cain's dream of 999, a flat tax rate, except that tax rate would be 5.375, which really rolls off the tongue. I messed it up like three times trying to say it in the recording. Um, And it also would include, you know, tax cut for some families, which is great since I'm getting married this year, and triple the adoption tax credit uh, and eliminate the double deduction. But what it also does, according to uh, Danny Canzo of the uh, Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, is it would probably cost the state about $383 million per year. And 88% of the tax cuts would go to people who are earning $108,000 a year. And more than 500,000 middle class households would experience a tax increase. So strange, strange that they're doing this in a uh, election year. Uh, But yeah, that, that seems to be what the legislature is thinking about doing. This is wild. The legislature that had a knockdown drag out fight over a modest increase in the gas tax to fund maintenance for roads back in 20, either 14 or 15. I'll harp on this till the day that I die. They all of a sudden in about a period of 24 hours introduced a plan that would raise taxes on half a million middle class households in the state and deliver a tax cut where most of the benefit goes to the wealthy. The the number the number that wasn't in your overview Luke, but that was really shocking to me was that just over 40% of the benefit was going to go to households with incomes over half a million dollars a year, which is just wild. Yeah, that's crazy. That's not us. That's not us. No, this this show would have much swankier production values if I had that much money. I'm going to be honest. I think this is a campaign season right before crossover day bill. I've seen many bills like this before. I think a bunch of Republican reps want to be like, and I voted for a flat tax and then yaga, yaga, yaga. It didn't happen. So reelect me. Um, like, I think that's what this is. I won't be shocked if something similar to this ends up passing the Senate and being signed by Governor Kemp. But this does somewhat feel to me like many bills that I've seen watching the Georgia legislature where they're just like, oh, it's almost crossover day and we haven't passed a tax cut. <laughs> Let's pass one real quick. And then, you know, we'll, we'll work out the details later. I, I, you know, with it's Tuesday today. This is when they passed it. Thursday is crossover day. I would not be shocked as if that is what this bill is. I actually, I, I feel a little bit differently about it. We'll talk about this a little bit more as we get to the other topics, but If you are, you know, one of the main complaints that Republicans have had during this period of Republican rule is that they were not aggressive enough on cutting taxes and sort of the holy grail of conservative tax cutting and conservative tax policy is to institute a flat tax and then push that flat tax as low as it'll go until you starve the state of revenue. If House Republicans are feeling like they have the chance to lose the House. This is the Hail Mary pass that you throw to do your full conservative tax reform. The thing that is just super shocking to me is that all of this is being considered. This is a bill that would cost over $300 million per year in state revenue on top of the state revenue that got lost in the first step reduction in 2018. And The state is going to have to continue to budget in this environment created by their tax law, which means that they're going to have to come back and probably cut some of the programs that they 
so proudly saved from cuts from Governor Kemp's proposal this year. And Governor Kemp has been getting beat up in the press over the spending cuts that he proposed. And this is not going to make his budgeting in the future any easier, which makes me wonder, you know, the tax cuts were not a priority of Governor Kemp's. The second step reduction down to 5.5% was not in the governor's budget proposal. So I do wonder if this is a Hail Mary passed by the House, but that it may not get agreed to in other places in the legislative process. Kyle, don't you know the tax cuts always increase revenue? <laughs> really, if, if we really wanted to increase revenue, we should just cut taxes to zero. Then that's how you'd maximize it. But, you know, I mean, kicking aside, I think I, I agree with you that, like, you could be equally right and that the Senate could look at this and say, this is great. And, it, you know, it helps the people that vote for us and it hurts the people that don't. So let's do it. Um, and I, I would not be shocked by that outcome either. Uh, I just, you know, am a hopeless optimist. And sometimes when I see bills like this, when the, and when they pop up this quickly and they get rushed, uh, you know, through the process, it it feels like it's a, the you know, the House is wanting to say, like, we would like to have an active bill to play around with taxes. And we haven't had time to think it out, but this is alive, you know, and it's not, and we won't be ashamed of this vote. And I, I hope that's what it is because I don't think this is really thought through. There, there have been a lot of states run by very conservative governors that have really screwed up their financial situation, Kansas being the most famous one. Uh, and I, I really hope we're not going down that route because Georgia is just a state that cannot afford it. We don't have the time uh, to just deal with something that insane. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that's not what this is and that they, you know, take a breath and uh, make some better decisions. But uh, the legislature is loath to do that sometimes. Megan, it is an election year. And the last time that we were podcasting during an election year and that the legislature considered a tax cut was 2018. And I, at the time, was pretty critical of Democrats who did not feel safe to be more critical of a tax cut that was obviously risky, that was obviously going to create problems for the state budget and programs that matter to low-income people in our state. Today, I was a bit heartened to see a lot more Democratic pushback, not only on this tax cut proposal, you know, it was a pretty tight vote given the distribution of the legislature. 68 uh, people voted against the proposal, the majority of which were Democrats. Um, and in the debate over the budget, uh Several Democratic lawmakers got up and talked about the ways in which the 2018 tax cut created this environment that was forcing spending cuts on programs that vulnerable people rely on. What do you think about Democrats feeling a little more emboldened to be able to stand up in an election year and say and be critical of tax cuts and put a focus on programs that help vulnerable people in our state? I think it's great. I think, honestly, the environment has been helped by the fact that, as we talked about previously, Republican lawmakers has, have also stood up to some of the budget issues. Um, it just kind of helps create an environment where that's an acceptable thing to do. But also, I'm proud of Democrats for sticking to their social issues and sticking to the fact that we know that social issues cost money. Um, you know, I'm I get kind of fed up when people say that they're a social liberal but a fiscal conservative because to me what that just means is that you won't make any decisions. And I'm really glad that I don't see the Democratic Party in Georgia saying that and just kind of stepping back and letting things happen. They're saying, no, we believe in this social issue. This costs money. We need to fund it. Fund it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the other thing is, too, I think Democrats – Un, may have underestimated just how harmful the first round of the tax cuts would have been and like the precarious financial situation that we'd be entering because really the only time in Georgia legislative history where we've had significant like real budget problems was the financial crisis and everyone was having budget problems. And, you know, the Georgia tax situation has been so stable for so long I think they just took it for granted and they thought that would it, the consequences wouldn't be that bad. Georgia was a growing state doing pretty well and that we could afford to do it without consequence. And 
the you know fight we've been talking about this entire session is budget the budget and i think if this ends up being what the legislature does they're just setting themselves up for more paying and i think the democrats have wised up and seen the fact that you know if we cut taxes money will mag- not magically roll in and we'll have to start taking the knife to programs that are actually helping people um and so i'm happy that democrats are standing up for that and especially not endorsing a tax cut that literally only helps the richest people in the state and yeah. hurts a lot of middle class people so ridiculous yeah i mean i think that this will be part of the message on the campaign trail this fall, it, it also, it sets itself up nicely for a contrast in campaign ads, because despite the fact that the House restored a lot of the funding cuts, they're not all gone. So you can credibly and accurately claim that cuts were made to important services for Georgians, while at the same time, the legislature passed a tax cut for wealthy people. And I I would hope to see Democrats highlight that contrast more forcefully this fall because there was some polling uh, early in session that suggested that voters who were asked in the poll understood the trade-off between tax cuts that would largely benefit the wealthy and spending cuts that would hurt services that people with low incomes rely on, um, that that could be a winning message and that Democrats could use that as a as a tool for taking the majority in the house and actually making real substantive policy changes you know it's going to be difficult for this election to be about anything other than a referendum on donald trump's presidency at the federal level Uh, but i hope to see this as a part of democratic messaging on the state level this fall um so we'll leave the budget discussion there now uh the legislature did pass adjournment resolutions today. They don't quite match up in the House and the Senate, uh, but they did both set an end date of April 2nd for sine die. Um, So they do have a timetable for getting the full budget done, answering the questions regarding this tax proposal. Um, So they're going to kind of put it in a pressure cooker here at the end, uh, but we'll be following it and talk to you more about it soon. Let's talk about some of the bills that are making their way forward in the legislative process before crossover day. So crossover day is Thursday, and that means for most legislation, it is do or die. That's because proposals have to clear one chamber of the legislature prior to day 28 to be eligible for passage this year. That is, unless, of course, your proposal is a leadership priority. In that case, then the rules are made up and the concept of time does not matter. Uh, But let's check in on some of the legislation that has been working its way through the process. Uh, Megan, one of the most uh, impactful issues that I have seen discussed at the legislature this session is the issue of maternal mortality. And the legislature made a fairly bold move forward on uh, a proposal to deal with maternal mortality. What did the legislature do on Tuesday? The legislature has proposed allowing pregnant women to keep Medicaid coverage for six months after they give birth, um, which is not currently the case. Currently, pregnant women can keep Medicaid for 60 days. And this is from, this recommendation is from a study committee that actually recommended extending Medicaid coverage for a full year. Um, Clearly, we're not seeing that, but other states are pushing for this. So we're, you know, in Georgia, like we just finished getting done talking about the budget. We're definitely trying to weigh balance budget and social issues. So it seems like this is just kind of the compromise that Georgia is trying to make to have this program not cost a ton of money, but also still address a very critical issue. Yeah. And this is a proposal. It passed the House on Tuesday. Um, There was also funding for this proposal that passed in the House's budget proposal. So this seems pretty solid moving forward. Um, It really answers this really challenging issue in the state where Georgia has one of the worst maternal mortality rates of any state in the country. Black women in our state are three to four times more likely than white women to die at some point near childbirth or by some complication related to childbirth. And, And Medicaid is a really important tool for this issue. Medicaid for Medicaid pays for more than half of the births in our state. So this, I think, is undeniably a good thing that the legislature is doing. Um, It could be better. They could 
extend Medicaid coverage for an entire year, as some other states are proposing to do. They also could expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act so that Medicaid coverage is there not just close to a pregnancy, but that it's there for people with low incomes all of the time. Uh, Because one of the issues at play in maternal mortality is that underlying health conditions can make the stress of a pregnancy worse and can make your mortality risk higher. And you don't just start to engage with the healthcare system when you become pregnant. It is important for people to have access to primary care and medications and services that they need well before that time. So the state can obviously do more, but but this is a pretty good thing. For sure. I think one of the things to, that you hit on that I just want to make sure that we call out is the racial disparity in these numbers. We know that underrepresented minorities are far more affected by these issues. Um, and part of that is just because of the way our healthcare system is and exists. I know that I've read a story recently that talks about a black woman who a friend of a friend knows who had a complication after birth, uh, after giving birth and was not believed by her doctors. And so that's a problem. We just, there's a lot of bias and I'm not trying to put the medical community on blast or anything like that. I think that we all have unconscious biases. Um, but I think that especially in Georgia, we know that a lot of our laws and a lot of our processes and policies are not fair from a racial perspective. And so hopefully um, allowing more Medicare coverage for uh, pregnancy and afterward will resolve some of those issues. And Megan, as we come up on Crossover Day, the legislature does seem to have parents and families on their mind. What did the legislature do with paid parental leave? The paid parental leave Uh, related bill, it would grant three weeks of paid parental leave to um, a quarter of a million state employees. And uh, this is this includes teachers and also university system employees, which three weeks of paid parental leave is definitely not something to sneeze at considering um, the state didn't offer any paid parental leave before. Um, Everything that they offered was related to unpaid leave as uh, required by FMLA. So I'm proud to see the state do this. I do wish that they would go a little bit further. But again, like everything else we've talked about on this episode, I think Georgia is trying to strike that balance of spending versus offering some things to some better services. One reality, Megan, that the legislature seems to be dealing with here is that paid parental leave is becoming an increasingly important issue uh, for corporate employers, for nonprofit employers, for employers outside of the public sector. Uh, Do you have any additional thoughts on, you know, what this means in terms of like competitiveness or uh, the working environment for state employees compared to the options they could have in the private employment market. Definitely. I, I This is going to make the state much less competitive. The state already has some competitive problems, um, and I won't. I don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of that, but what I will say is that a lot of private industry, especially, you know, I can speak about the tech industry. Um, my company offers either 14 or 16 weeks of paid parental leave. And what they're finding is that employees do come back. They're not having to retrain people, all of those good things. So it's very good for the company, as well as it is a major draw to know that you don't have to put your entire life on hold to start your family and then not basically have to, you know, have your kid and then all of a sudden be like, all right, well, I guess I'm going back to work now. Um, So I do wish the state would do a little bit more in order to be able to attract top talent. But, you know, steps toward the right direction are better than nothing at all. So I'll take it. Yeah, I think they felt like this would increase competitiveness. Um, you know, paid paid leave of any kind, parental leave, health leave, um, that is a challenge for workers who are part-time, for workers who are not represented by a union. Um, there are a lot of types of employment in this country that are really behind the curve of uh, the most generous corporate employers or nonprofit employers or unionized employers. 
Um, so I imagine maybe it puts the state somewhere in the middle to have an offer. Uh, but hopefully this is, you know, any anytime you have some kind of expansion or a new program introduced or a new policy introduced that sometimes the hardest step is getting it on the books and then there's an opportunity to grow it from there um certainly that's where uh it would be good for this to go for sure they can also see how their recruiting goes after they're able to implement it and see if they're getting the talent in the door that they want and need um and if they're finding that they're able to attract that better through benefits than through salaries then that's something that they can adjust so that was a proposal that was on the general calendar. Uh, that means it is basically on deck for rules. Uh, rules can consider it soon. It seems likely that it would get consideration on crossover day, given that uh, the speaker uh, hosted a press conference to announce support for this bill. Um, it seems pretty likely to move forward. And then, Megan, one more for you. Another bill that seems likely to move forward is an effort to modernize and decriminalize uh, provisions in the law related to HIV. This is House Bill 719. What does House Bill 719 do? This is a much needed bill that would reduce criminal penalties for failure to disclose HIV status. Right now, um, in Georgia, for people living with HIV, it's a felony for them to have sex or donate blood without disclosing their HIV status. And this is true even if this person is considered undetectable, um, as far as I am, as I understand, which for those of you who are not familiar with that, it is exactly what it sounds like. There are people who have been undergoing treatment for HIV who, for whom you cannot detect that they have the virus in their bloodstream. Instead of the, it being a felony, it would turn it into a misdemeanor and it would apply um, this. This law would only apply to intentional attempt, attempts to transmit HIV. Um, it would also reduce from a felony to a misdemeanor any attempt to spit at or put other bodily fluids on a police officer. A lot of these bills exist from a time or a lot of these laws exist from a time when people were very scared of HIV. And I think that some people still are, but I'm happy to see some of the stigma going away. And I'm happy to see Georgia take steps. Again, like my stance is with most things, I wish Georgia would go further, but I'm grateful for any sort of step in the right direction. And this definitely is one. And do you think uh, that this this effort to reduce stigma, even if it's a relatively modest step, uh, do you think that it could be important in reducing the transmission of HIV? That's a good question. I I don't know that it would do anything necessarily to reduce the transmission other than perhaps make it easier for people to talk about having HIV because it's not something that is now associated with a felony. Um, despite the fact that the felony was meant to keep people from spreading, spreading HIV, spreading the virus, um, I think that even it being associated with any sort of felony makes it just even harder to talk about. And so I think that it does open up Georgia for a better, more constructive conversation around HIV and the spread of HIV, especially in the Atlanta metro um, and in Georgia, because we're one of the top ranking states for and cities for new cases. Um, but I don't know that the bill itself actually takes any constructive measures to stop the spread of HIV. That is another one that is on the general calendar. It got a bipartisan vote out of a committee. Uh, I believe this was last week or two weeks ago. Um, so it is teed up to be considered. It'll likely be considered in the Russia bills that are considered in the House on crossover day. Uh, Luke, a piece of legislation that we have talked about before is this proposal from Governor Kemp to make more stringent laws related to gang-related crime in the state. Um, this is a measure that got picked over pretty meticulously in committee uh, last week. Uh, what is the status of the governor's uh, big bill to combat gang crime? Like many other Governor Kemp initiatives, the legislature has basically watered it down uh, quite, quite some bit uh, to hit the highlights uh, Kemp had wanted gang-related murders to be eligible for the death penalty. They have removed that. The other really big change, which is 
the one I'm I'm happy to see probably the most is that uh, Kemp Kemp's proposal had people between the ages of 13 and 17 could be charged as adults if the offenses were gang related, and now that will be gone as well. So that that is very good that we're not you know charging very young teenagers as adults. And that is another one I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that is on the general calendar. So that is one that seems likely to get consideration. Um, That was a measure that did get a lot of pushback from groups working on criminal justice issues in the state. Uh, Groups like the Southern Center for Human Rights pushed back pretty hard on this issue. Sherry Boston, the DA in DeKalb County, uh, testified in committee on this issue. I think she basically said that these statutes related to gang crime are already really tough. Um, our listeners may remember when we talked about this issue before, sort of the animating incident that has motivated Governor Kemp to pursue landmark legislation on gang-related crimes was a gang-related murder uh, about 10 years ago of a child. And part of what motivated the provision for having gang-related murders be eligible for the death penalty was the lack of a death penalty in that case. But in that case, the defendant who was convicted received multiple life sentences, hundreds of years in prison in that sentence. And and I don't believe they were going to be eligible for any kind of parole. So I you know, they were basically given a full life sentence. Um, Some of this discussion has been framed as rolling back Governor Deal's legacy on criminal justice reform. And I think in some ways, that's about half right. You know, a lot of the effort around criminal justice reform has dealt with nonviolent offenders, people convicted of drug related offenses. Um, And I think what true criminal justice reformers want to see is some of the focus on uh, restorative justice that is inherent in the way we've increasingly treated drug-related offenses in that state to be extended to more serious crimes so that when somebody, particularly when they are young, makes a really bad mistake that in some cases even could end the life of another person, that you don't simply make that worse by condemning the person who committed the crime to death, but you invest in rehabilitation and try uh, to put that person back on the right path. When you extend this conversation to violent crimes up to, and maybe even including crimes like murder, it becomes hard, I think, for people to really process and be sympathetic and empathetic to somebody who obviously did a terrible thing. Uh, but that is, I think, the place where criminal justice reformers would like this discussion to go. A lot of these proposals, probably with the glaring exception of the gang bill, are issues that are not the sort of socially conservative red meat legislation that has been pursued in recent years. Uh, there has not been a big focus on gun legislation. There has not been a big focus on anti-LGBTQ proposals. Some of those proposals are out there, but they don't seem to be the ones that are getting the backing of legislative leadership and are being prioritized. Um, Does that, to y'all, signify any pressure that particularly Republicans in the House may be feeling in advance of the 2020 elections? I think it does. I think that one of the things that we've learned, at least in Georgia, with Georgia being a swing state, is that a lot of these red meat type bills can be very polarizing. And while we've, you know, while things like that do tend to work in the primaries, they don't necessarily win you elections. And I think that there is an effort in Georgia right now to kind of not do anything to stir up the masses right now, to not do anything to, you know, really possibly anger your base. And also maybe to make yourself a a slightly more appealing to somebody who might be willing to cross the aisle. So I think that that, I think that there is a bit of a, of an atmosphere that allows for, for some of these issues to be taken, take, to be approached with a more moderate mindset. So I, I think the legislature is feeling pressure. Um, they they should be for a lot of reasons. The first reason 
is that they dropped a lot of red meat bills last session, especially with the you know uh, heartbeat bill. That's generating a lot of uh, blowback for them, and they I feel like a lot of the legislators who voted for that were not expecting so much blowback, and I think it's also just the sheer shellacking Republicans in the suburbs experienced in 2018 has taken some time to like actually sink into them and to just like the controversy around Kemp's win has taken time because we have to remember like the election was in November and then they had session until roughly April of the year after. And so, you know, a lot of these narratives while they were there, they had not fully started to develop yet. And uh, you know, we can just move right into our third topic and talking about qualifying. I think a lot of legislators, even before qualifying happened and they had officially 100% had an opponent on the ballot, they knew they were going to have an opponent. Based off of an email from the Democratic Party of Georgia, we the Democratic Party is contesting more seats than it has since Reconstruction, which is quite an amazing stat if you think about it um what that ends up being is that uh 144 of the 180 state house seats are contested so that's 80 percent 43 of the 56 state senate seats so that's roughly 77 percent and then all 14 congressional seats have a democratic opponent now obviously all these seats are not contestable and many of them are real long shots but a lot of them are competitive and you know that number might still sound low because with the exception of the congressional seats you know that's like 20 percent uncontested but to just like put this into context not four years ago in 2016 we were in a situation where even if every single democrat on the ballot won we would not have taken the house majority and so we have improved our situation quite significantly in a very short amount of time where districts that were winnable that people like me who obsessed about the numbers would tell everyone this is a winnable district. We have to find a candidate. We would talk to people and try to recruit them to run. And they would be like, I don't, you know, they just wouldn't do it. Like we just couldn't get good candidates to run in these seats. And now we have a lot of people pursuing seats. We have primaries in some of these seats to try to figure out, you know, who the best possible Democrat nominee can be in those seats and not just one Democrat running. And so I think Republicans just are feeling that pressure, uh, both internally and externally. And that is why we have such a widely contested uh, election season coming up this year. Megan, are there any candidates or, or any developments as it relates to Democrats increased enthusiasm and in qualifying for this these seats and in contesting more races this year, any of that kind of stuff that stands out to you? What I would actually comment on, Kyle, is the f- who's not there. I don't have any big surprises on who is there. I'm pretty happy with the with the qualifying numbers and those sorts of things. But there is one name that is conspicuously absent, and that is Abel Mabel Thomas. We talked a couple of podcast episodes ago um, how she was considering a bid for U.S. Senate, how she wasn't rerunning for House District 56, which is my district. And maybe maybe she listens to our podcast. I don't know. But um, Luke, I feel like you had some things to say on the matter. And maybe she's not running now. I, I will just say that I have some disappointments in that I was considering um, a possible run and her stepping away from her seat at this time changed that for me because I'm not in a position where I can run at the moment. And I was hoping that she would stay in her house seat and rerun for it. And so not only is she not doing that, but she's also not running for Senate. And so I don't know. I'm a little bit confused. I'm a little bit. I, I wonder what happened. And she listened to the podcast. That, that is. A, <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe she listened to the podcast. Well, Luke, 21 people qualified. 21. For that and she wasn't one of them. I go. It's insane. And so I just want to go like down this. Twenty one. This is this is insane. There are six Republicans, eight Democrats, one Libertarian, four Independents, one Green, and one Reagan. 
Like, this is nuts. Like, I knew a lot of people would be in this jungle primary, but I think this is the biggest one I've ever seen. So, I, I mean, it's just going to be very overwhelming uh, going into that ballot and, and picking from all these names for a lot of people. And so, you know, that just makes the actually viable Democrats, sorry, you know, six other Democrats of Matt Lieberman and Raphael Warnock, it makes their job really, really big um, in trying to get enough attention, especially because Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler, two of the six Republicans running, are going to generate a lot of media. I mean, that just really puts the pressure on Warnock and Lieberman to run fantastic races, because I think if it was held right now, what would happen is Loeffler and Collins would go to a runoff in, in January, and th that would just be uh, bad for the state because, you know, I think it's always better when you have two parties on the ballot, um, but also it would just be, you know, boring <laughs> as well for, for all of us. Um, I mean, Luke, this could be a dumb question, but does the fact that there will be 21 people on the ballot rather than one Democrat versus one Republican versus maybe one libertarian or third party candidate that you'll see in most of the other races on your ballot on general election day. Does that create the opportunity for anything just like weird to happen with 21 people listed? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, there's so many possibilities. I mean, you could have two Democrats win, you could have the green party candidate unlikely, but it could happen. I mean, the, the one thing that I think will keep something huge from happening is that there's really only two well-known Republicans running. If there have been more of them, I think that would have increased the odds for a really crazy scenario. But I, I, I would be surprised if Lieberman, if both Lieberman and Warnock could get more votes than Collins and um, Loeffler. I think it could still get crazy from the perspective of just logistics. Um, I'm more worried about it from a usability perspective with the new voting system. What is that going to look like? Um, well, the screens are bigger now, Megan, <laughs> so it actually will fit. Uh, I, I will say this is one area where if there aren't any technical issues, I, did, I actually did get demoed on the voting machine, and one of the, the demos they had was not 21, but like probably 10 uh, different choices, and with as large as the screen is, I, I think it actually won't be that scary, uh, so that's one area that if the software works, okay. it'll be okay, but well, yeah, we'll All see. Right, if the software yeah, key, works. Keywords, keywords. I don't know. I just... Right. I also just worry about with so much text being on a screen, um, anyone with any sort of disability that is related to reading screens or vision. Um, I, I know I literally work in front of a screen all day and I've been known to click the wrong area of a screen. So, yeah, I I have major concerns about lo the logistics of that and the fact that somebody's going to have to sit down and read. I also think that having such an extensive list is going to uh, really encourage people who are undecided to just pick the first person at the top of the list, um, which brings us into all kinds of other conversations about like randomizing people on the list and not listing them in alphabetical order and blah, blah, blah. Um, things that we've talked about in, in years past. But I do definitely have some concerns with so many candidates. The two last things I want to hit is, one, there are seven Democrats running against David Perdue. We've only really talked about three of them since Ted Terry is no longer running against David Perdue. Uh, so that's kind of crazy in my mind. Uh, the other thing is the there are five Democrats uh, from Congress uh, in the state of Georgia, and three of them, including for some godforsaken reason, John Lewis, have primaries. Uh, so those will be interesting to watch. Uh, you know, for John Lewis, just how incredibly big his win will be that pissed me off it pissed me off that somebody's primarying john lewis i just have to say i have some pretty significant feelings about that i, I think it's interesting that sanford bishop doesn't have one um and that's nothing against sanford bishop it's just i i hear a lot of uh democrats in the state complain that he's fairly conservative uh both him and david scott uh, get those complaints so I'm, I'm unshocked that david scott has the most opponents just because of how much he gets but i'm surprised that sanford bishop uh was able to fend off you know, all challenges from the left um, and then the the last thing I want to hit on with qualifying, and there, there's so much more, but there's only so much time this podcast can be, uh, is there's a lot of interesting comebacks uh, of people trying to make comebacks. You know, the boring one is Karen Handle, who is at this point almost a perennial candidate. Um, but the mm -hmm. the other ones is uh, John Barge is is running for Congress. He uh, was our former uh, state school superintendent. Tried to run for that. Uh, tried to run for governor against Deal, and then tried to re 
regain the state superintendent seat and failed, so he's running for Congress. Paul Brown, uh, a an interesting man, let's put it that, uh, who was a congressman from uh, you know Athens, is is running for a different seat now. Eugene Yu, who is also a perennial candidate, uh, who had run in the primary to try to be John Barrow's opponent uh, the year that he lost and has run for a couple other seats, is now running for a different congressional seat. And speaking of the man, John Barrow, uh, he is trying to run for a different Supreme Court seat. And th- this almost created my favorite lawsuit ever, uh, which would have been two people suing the state uh, one John Barrow and then a state uh, former state representative Beth Beskin suing the state so they have an opportunity to run against each other uh, but she instead has challenged uh, a current Supreme Court justice Charlie Bethel and so that that you know great wa- lawsuit will forever live on in my mind and my heart but not in reality and Barrow is now alone in his challenge all right uh, well we are gonna leave that there. For now, thanks for sticking with us for a long podcast. We will be back to recap uh, what goes down on Crossover Day. Luke and Megan, I think you're both going to be there, so hopefully we'll get a sense of the proceedings from y'all. But with that, we are going to wrap it there. Uh, So we will talk to y'all again soon. Luke and Megan, thank y'all for joining the podcast. Thanks. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.